This podcast does not contain much swearing, but it is probably not suitable for children. Especially because of the Christian Bale jingle, what do you reckon? Excuse me? I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton, I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this, that's the plan. Rosie, 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 come here and say hello. Hey, got her tongue hanging out and she's sort of loping towards me going, whoa, what do you want? Why do you always ask me to come say hello? And what am I going to do when I get there? Now I'm a dog. Hello, dog. Cockles. Rosie, give us a hug. Rosie. Oh, Rosie, you're all wet. She's been bouncing around in the tall grass again in a very reckless fashion. And the grass is all wet because it's been raining. Ah, it's very muggy today. So that's the weather report. Hey, how are you doing, listeners? Welcome to podcast number 22, which features a conversation with Johnny Greenwood, keyboard and guitar player for alternative rock band Radiohead. Johnny was ranked 48 in Rolling Stone magazine's list of the 100 greatest guitarists of all time in 2011, which is very good. I didn't even make the top 60. But, and this is very clever of me to say, there are other strings to Johnny's bow. As well as being a rock guy, Johnny is an increasingly uh, impressive and in-demand composer for films, feature films. I guess in that arena, he's probably best known for his work with uh, director Paul Thomas Anderson. And uh, Johnny has worked on PTA's last three films, Inherent Vice, The Master, and of course There Will Be Blood. I drink your milkshake. I drink it up! Bastard in a basket! Not you, Rosie. As I speak, Johnny Greenwood is 44 years of age, though I'm sorry to say that will change, thanks to the twattish and inexorable yomp of time. He is married to a woman, and he has three human children and one dog child. Now, like the other members of Radiohead, I would say that Johnny's not especially comfortable with the whole business of giving interviews and talking about himself. So this ramble chat is by no means an in-depth account of his career thus far. It's not one of those kinds of interviews. Instead, it's more of a series of moments from a fairly meandering conversation that we had at the beginning of this month, June 2016, when I went out to Lyon to see Radiohead play a show at the Roman Amphitheatre on the hill of Fourvière. The Amphitheatre? Here's a fun fact about the Amphitheatre. It was apparently built around 15 BC. Whoa. Back then, if you wanted something from the merch stand, you had to haggle, and it took ages. However, the beer was a lot cheaper, so that was good. 
Apparently the toilets were a disgrace though. <laughs> this is good stuff, isn't it? What gigs were like in 15 BC? Oh, I'm gonna have to save that up for the live shows. Anyway, I asked Johnny if he'd ever be up for doing this podcast and he said possibly, and he said maybe the best thing would be if I got myself out to Lyon when they were playing there and he said we could talk in the afternoon before the band did their sound check. And in fact, right at the end of our conversation, I think you can hear Ed O'Brien of Radiohead sound checking in the background, strumming a few chords. I got to know Radiohead through their producer Nigel Godrich, I suppose, back at the beginning of the noughties, which is very exciting for me because I was then and still am a big fan of the band. And one of my favourite times ever was working with Radiohead on the webcasts that they did around the release of In Rainbows in 2007, which some of you will know about. Did those with my friend Garth Jennings, friend of the podcast, Garth Jennings. And actually recently I also made a, a little video for them, one of the 30-second video vignettes or blips to accompany tracks from their new album, Moon-Shaped Pool, which I think they put on Instagram, the little 30-second square videos. I did the one for Desert Island Disc with some daisies buffering. So anyway, this ramble chat. I met Johnny outside his hotel in the old part of Lyon, where we wandered around later in the afternoon, being stopped occasionally by excited Radiohead fans, some of which you hear in the podcast. But first, we trudged up the big hill behind where Johnny was staying. And once we'd reached the top, we found ourselves uh, outside the Basilica of Notre-Dame de Fourvière, which is where I attached a mic to Johnny and we started to whiffle and waffle. And that's, I think, all you need to know. Probably a lot more than you need to know. So, come with us as we walk around just you, me, and Johnny Greenwood. Here we go. Ramble chat, let's have a ramble chat. We'll focus first on this, then concentrate on that. Come on, let's chew the fat and have a ramble chat. Put on your conversation coat and find your talking hat. Yes, yes, yes. Blah, 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 blah. So let's set the scene. We are at the top of a hill in Lyon, which is a, a city in France, which is uh, in Europe, where all the Europeans live. It's the place that we have to stay in unless we want things to get really, really bad, according to David Cameron. You want to stay in Europe, right, Johnny? Sure. What's not to like about Europe? It's a place, isn't it? I mean, it is. You're right. But... This is nice, Lyon. Just had a great stroll around the old town. Oh, we didn't take the funicular. No. We decided to walk up some stairs. Sure. We had a nice walk through the park. It got a little bit cottagey. Very high-end cottagey, <laughs> though. I was observing that it's the kind of... There's lots of little nooks and crannies as you walk up this hill and uh, little very nicely tended walled garden areas. What is the name of this place? Uh, Fourvière. 
and it looks like, as Johnny said, it looks a bit like Sacré-Cœur in Paris. On the way up, you've got all these little nooks and crannies where normally intravenous drug users would convene and have their drug fun. And then it would all be ruined by their bloody needles and their tagging. But what I was saying was that probably there wouldn't be too many intravenous drug users because it's just too knackering to get up the hill. And once you're up, though, if you did get up there to do your crazy drugs, you would probably be cured because the view from up here is life-altering. And some guy in the background has just started up with an accordion. Yeah. Which is just perfect. Why don't you go over and show him some minimal accordion moves? <laughs> Have you ever got with the accordion? I've tried. I've got many very silly instruments. I've got a bladder pipe. Oh, Have you ever seen one of those? Sorry to hear that. That's, <laughs> that's just something that happens at this age, I guess. No, what's a bladder pipe? It looks and sounds as, as ridiculous as the name suggests. It is literally a bladder with a, a pipe attached. And you, <laughs> you inflate the bladder yeah. by blowing into it. It's sure like you. a miniature bagpipe, <laughs> but there are two pipes mm -hmm. coming out with holes on, so you use your left and right hand so you can play two notes at once. Where does that instrument originate? Well, I got it in Prague. I think it's an Eastern European thing. Okay. It's a very suits corner of me, but that's, that's my idea of a good time is going to silly instrument shops and getting an instrument that looks nearly playable. I think if you're a musician, moreover, you have some talent, then I think it's acceptable to go and buy strange musical instruments. Yeah. Who else is going to buy them if not you? <laughs> I would say it would be more suity for someone like me to go along and get them, which I have done. I've got loads of musical instruments and I can't play any of them. I uh, know it's not true. It's true. I've heard your jingles. Ah, well, that's garage band, though. Uh, or at least that's logic. Right. I don't use the, the, the ready-made jingles anymore. They are constructed. Right. But someone on, on Twitter the other day said, oh, look, you've got yourself a chaosolator. And indeed, I had. Did you spot that? Did you ever use the chaosolator? No, I remember Joe being a fan. That was his only Joe secret Cornish. weapon, Joe Cornish. Yeah. Well, he turned me on to it, yeah. Right. Is it related to the Chaos Pad, which you have used? I do use that, you see, yes. But that's just for recording and playing back. I don't oscillate with it. Okay. okay. I don't know what you're doing with that thing. Interesting. You still use something similar on stage, right, don't you? Yes, that's right. We have song, everything in its right place, and I get to record Tom and in real time and instantly play him back. This car is next to us. I'm going to wait for it to go and then resume. Let's sit here in awkward silence. Let's say something that is definitely not going to be usable. <laughs> Let me tell you what I really think about Brexit. So that car's gone now. Mm. I can return to what I was asking you before about, about things you use on stage, the chaos pad. Right. Is it actually a chaos pad you're using then? It is, that's true, and I get to record Tom and, and make him sound like he's singing backwards and, you know. Right, so at the beginning of everything in its right place, he sing some stuff. Yeah, and throughout the song I just take little snippets and, and, and fire it back in, in a timing best designed to, to put them off. And I wanted to ask you if you ever find it difficult to concentrate on stage, especially with all the lights and all, all the lights, all <laughs> the flashing lights, because there's an awful lot of lights and flashing lights, and there's several strobe sections Okay. Where you feel, even as an audience member, slightly disorientated. Yes. And I can't imagine what it's like trying to do your thing on stage. I've started enjoying playing while not really watching what my fingers are doing too much because I think it's easier. 
Right, okay. Especially on the piano and stuff, it's like you... It makes me less nervous. So you could play literally in the dark? You, yeah, sort of, yes, usually. Is that um, the same with the guitar then? Do you feel... Have you fused with that instrument? No, it's still a sort of clumsy struggle. But piano is more... I, it's, I imagine I'm home sometimes when I'm... Because I remember practising all the songs at home. And so I kind of pretend I am there. And it makes me a bit less nervous that so many people are watching and listening. Okay. It's a nice way to do it. The European tour yes. now, uh, Lyon, for Moonshaped Pool. Right. And we are in um, early June, June the 1st it is today, yep. 2016, and you will continue to tour Europe and the world for the rest of this year, is that right? Uh, until October, yeah. And that'll take in places like Japan and then the US? Sure. Yes. Um, and you should come with us. Okay. You have to come. Yeah. Thanks very much, I will. That was easy. <laughs> now all I need is to get dispensation from my wife. My wife. She wasn't totally happy when I announced that I was going to Lyon in the middle of half term. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, but yes. um, world tour, you right. get little breaks in between so you don't go crazy, right? That's true. Yes, it's quite spread out this time. And the touring experience is one that you're all happy with, that you enjoy, that you look forward to, or it's, you don't dread it though, right? We're in Car Central. Should we go and sit over there? Sure. Right? There we go. Now we've relocated. Uh, now come the children. That's okay. So yeah, the, the business of touring, you were saying it's quite fun, you know, you get to walk around new places sure. like this. I mean, that must be great. It's great. There's no downside at all. And yeah, I don't understand bands complaining about touring. It's always great. I mean, until someone gets ill or there's sort of that kind of stress. Yeah. That's the only time when it gets... I would say, especially at the level that you're at, I, I imagine that touring, when you're staying in shitty hotels and, and you've got long journeys in horrible vans or whatever, Yeah. that's probably not that much fun. Even though you're bonded by... The camaraderie and... No, it's fun. It's always been fun. It was always, like, the most exciting... When we started, just having a, a van turn up outside our house to take us to our first tour in England. It was just the best, you know. We were going, and, going to play. It was, it was Coventry, our first ever show, and it was just so exciting. Unbelievable, just turning up in this... Back when venues still had sort of sticky floors and smelt of beer and fags and loading in and playing a show and just fantastic. Mm. We used to, I used to, on purpose, not know where we were going that, the following day and just, and it was always exciting. You know, even if it was like Buckley, Tivoli or Swindon or wherever. Yeah. 
I guess the things that people say that the, the downside of touring, they point to the boredom, hanging around, not knowing what to do with your time. Okay, well, I counter that with it's it's the free time. You can do more music and more work. You've got quiet rooms to work in. You've yeah. got musical instruments everywhere. It's it's amazing. It's kind of you know adolescent musical heaven really. So do you actually get work done when you're touring around? Sure, loads. Like most most of the film music I write is all on tour and in hotel rooms and the classical stuff. So you'll just wake up in the morning, have yourself yeah. some breakfast. Sure. How does a day go? You describe it to me. Well, it's changed. It used to be in the early early tours. It would start by picking up yellow pages, looking for the nearest record shop, and just walking there and buying old vinyl, sort of jazz records. That's what I used to do when we first went to America. But now it's more I'm making use of free time away from the family and spending it kind of in hotel rooms or in dressing rooms. I like going to the venue early. That's what I really like doing, getting there really early. I just like the crew and I like that whole side of it, the slightly sort of military feel of, you know, being backstage and seeing, seeing everything come together and, you know, it can be off-putting it can be sort of a bit mind-blowing seeing how many people are involved and the preparation that go into this two hours of you know, makes you think about every kind of wrong note and bad version of a song you play when you see like, members of the lighting crew asleep during the gig because that's the only time they can physically sleep and they're side of stage, they're lying on a road case, you know and having loaded in at five that morning and loading out, you know, at two in the morning. Yeah. It's a crazy life. What makes for a bad show as far as you're concerned? Um, being nervous, not enjoying it because you're nervous or you feel like you're playing badly. Like, we just did three shows at the Roundhouse. One of them I was really nervous for and didn't really feel great about and two of them I was, you know, really loved it. Mm. I was just listening to Tom sing and getting... and just playing to that and made me very happy. So it's not a guaranteed thing by any means. Yeah. But that makes it interesting, I think. And you played for a long time, like... You played, like, yeah. two and a half hours or something? Didn't feel that long, but yeah, I'm sure. And you play a very different set list, because I went on Set List FM. What's Set List FM? Here we go, Set List FM. And look, Radiohead are right at the top of uh, popular searches for Set List FM. Right. Um, and it just tells you the set list that they've played with. Yeah, and it tells you the set list... Okay. Um, and I was able to see that your set lists from the three roundhouse shows were very different. Right. Yes, to the consternation of our crew, who would obviously prefer it to be the same. I can remember seeing you two play, um, and the woman showing us round. We asked her how many songs she had to do, left to do, and she just looked at her laminate, and there was a set list on the back of the pass, on the back of the... It's the same every night. Okay. Which is just bizarre. But I guess when you've got that much production, you have to be organised. You have to know. Yeah. And I guess there's, there's a part of the audience that probably likes that. It makes it easier so that people don't feel, oh, I didn't get to see that one. Or, right. I wish they played that one on my night. Right. Broadly speaking, the shows at the moment are starting with moon-shaped pool stuff. Yes. And then going into a mix of King of Limbs and older stuff. Yep. And then encores that include, well, anything, right? Is there anything that you're not playing? You've, you've played Creep, you're playing Paranoid Android. You... Yep. Are there any big ones that, that, that aren't on the list? We tend to find that some songs suddenly don't sound very good to our ears and then we just leave them off 
for a while. Like, no surprises we didn't play for three or four years just because it felt, I don't know, tried it in rehearsal, didn't really feel it, but now it's back in again. Yeah, and yeah, and sounding really good. Yeah. It's got a swagger to it now, which I like, the way Philip's playing. Uh-huh. It's good. And, oh, wow, we've been overrun. Should we head back down to the... Yeah, OK. The park. night that me and Frank came to see you at the Roundhouse, Frank is my eldest son, and uh, he's only ever been to one other gig. Actually, it was also at the Roundhouse. It was Wilco a few years back. Okay. Which he really liked, but he was a little bit young. Um, yeah. And wasn't really familiar with a lot of Wilco's work, but he really was impressed by it. But this time, he's a bit older... And he's now, as well as the music that I've um, shoved down his throat, he's also exploring lots of other stuff. And uh, Radiohead has got its hooks into him in a big way. Okay. And he really loves Moon-Shaped Pool. It was really fun being at a gig and experiencing it through them in a way, you know. Okay. And, uh, and enjoying his excitement Yeah. Uh, at seeing this. I mean, he didn't really... People kept saying to him, you know, like, wow, this is a big deal because um, Radiohead wouldn't normally play in a venue this small anymore. I think we would, though, wouldn't we? Would you? Well, it's tough, you see, because I don't think we could have played that same set list if we'd been in, say, the O2 or some big. We'd have felt obliged to be a bit less... Um, yeah, it would just be, it'd be a very different thing, I think. You'd play more hits or you would play less? Because I saw you at the O2 and you did a pretty good varied set there that had some oldies and... Yeah, I suppose so. I don't know. It's weird, you see. I think, I mean, in our heads we're still, you know, we want to be Sonic Youth, want to be the same kind of band that we were all into at school. And it was never about being a big band. You know, some bands have that ambition, I think, to just be... We want to be the biggest band in the world, and that's what they kind of aim for. Uh-huh. And I, that's never been a very comfortable thing, I think, for us. What was your ambition then? What were you, did you ever think about things like that and say, this, these should be our goals, or, di- or were they conversations about things you wanted to avoid? I remember when we signed our record deal, Ed pretty much taking us aside and saying, right, this is where bands usually stop like putting any effort in, because they think they've, they've got somewhere and this is where we've really got to work hard um, not that we hadn't or weren't anyway or were too anything other than so uptight and anxious to rehearse and write and, but he, yeah we've always had that side of us I think so ambition yeah was always just to make records as good as the ones that we all were excited about mm-hmm. that was more, far more the goal than playing concerts or attracting you know interest that way right like in the early early school days, we would endlessly write music, rehearse it, record it, 
and just listen to it ourselves and play it to each other, practically. It was a very insular thing, looking back. It's quite odd how we used to... And even when everyone was at college and we'd get back at and practice all holidays, there'd never be a concert or anything. We'd just be kind of rehearsing to rehearse and there was no goal. It was weird. It's all it's quite aimless in a way. It chimed with me when I heard about the Pixies being... Because we made our first record with Sean Slade and Paul Calderi, who'd recorded some Pixies records. This was like in 92 or something that we worked with them. Mm -hmm. And they said, yeah, you know what? The Pixies always deserve their success because they used to hole up in rehearsal rooms and practice and practice and practice. And I always thought that was really cool and worth emulating. And it's really good that this concept of being able to rehearse as a band and get better, but not get better individually as players and become all sort of session-y and all sort of bad fusion rock guitar solo land. Mm -hmm. There's two different kinds of practicing. And one is this sort of communal thing of becoming a better band as this kind of entity. And that's... How that is it inspiring. different then? What are you doing differently in a practice th in that case? Are you talking more or are you... I guess you're arranging music. You're arranging songs, aren't you? And you're working out structures for things and... And you're saying, hey, guys, this bit could go here or <laughs> this bit much. could be shorter. Or... Kind of, yeah, exactly. Cutting, well, the Pixies were great with that. I mean, it's, that's all, all their songs are about, cutting out the Stripping fat, Stripping off they? the fat, and, right. Really, and working out and not being boring. Like, it's like how this, these sequences should be... Five, three bars long instead and why, you know, cutting the sharp corners of things as uh -huh. well. It's interesting. But keeping enough of those sharp corners on so that the music still feels jagged and yeah. it still feels... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Still feels unusual and holds your interest because of it. The fun thing about Radiohead, I suppose, for a lot of people, for me certainly, is that you manage to have your cake and eat it as far as... Well, you seem to keep an eye on the art and the unusual and the original, but you're also mindful of keeping it entertaining and keeping it enjoyable and, to some degree, accessible. And you get that when you see the band live, and it was really fun ending with uh, Karma Police. Right. Well, Frank was excited. My son was excited when that, the chords of Karma Police started because he's like, oh, I know this one, this is great. OK. They're going to play Karma Police, cool. And everyone stood up. I think Tom teased the audience and said, you have to stand up, otherwise we'll electrocute you. Or I can't remember. So everyone stood up and um, started singing along. And actually everyone was in good voice. Sometimes you get an audience that are all over the place and yeah. can't sing, but it sounded quite good. I was, again, I was sort of enjoying it through Frank, but I wasn't 100% invested in the musical experience the way I had been earlier on with some of the... To me, they sound like almost can-style grooves that you get into okay. nowadays. Yeah. Which are really amazing. When you all lock in and then I think the audience locks in and you get... It becomes a bit trance-like. It's wonderful. And with Karma Police, it was more like, sing a long time. But then when the song wraps up and you get that line, you know, for a minute there, I lost myself, it's, it's, it's very emotional. And it's also a brilliant summation of what you get from music and going to a concert. Yeah. And it felt as if Tom was aware of that and, and sort of working with it. Do you yeah. think that's right? No, I, I, I feel um, sort of quite emotional having you remind me of it. It's very, yes, it's very, um, it's a very strange thing, isn't it? Having all that sort of communal sense in a room of, of yeah, I don't know. Singing with people is, is 
an amazing thing, isn't it? And yes, you see. Something that you don't get. That's one of the very enviable things about uh, people who, for whom religion is important. I think. Yeah. Is that they get together and they sing on a regular basis. And there's a communal sense of joining in. Yeah. And if you're not a musician, and you're not a religious person, you don't have that in your life on a regular basis. Yeah. You really miss it. I think. I sort of got choked up. Um, yeah. When I was singing along, I surprised myself by suddenly not being able to sing that line. Right. Um, and then the band left the stage. Yeah. And Tom stayed on there. He had his guitar and he was just strumming, uh, strumming the chords. Right. And then the audience carried on singing it. Yeah. He didn't do the Robbie Williams thing of just not joining in. You know what I mean? Like when Robbie Williams did Angels at Glastonbury, I think. Okay. He just held the mic aloft and expected the audience to sing the whole thing. <laughs> he didn't sing any of it, or at least he, he he came in very late. I would rather the performer actually sang the song that you're excited about. You want to hear his voice, don't you? Yeah. Well, anyway, but so Tom joined in. It was such a great uh, moment. I thought it was really wonderful. Are you feeling all that stuff as well when you're on there, or are you just concentrating on? What needs to be done? Well, the good part of being in a band is you get to defray all responsibility. It's nice. It's like you're working for a company that people like. I like to kind of just melt into the fact that I'm in the band and it's happening. And I think that Tom does. Everyone does. It's like that's the that's the real good side of, of working with all these people for so long. Is it's it's not something you have to think about too much. How personally involved you are in in, in the the endeavour, I think. Uh-huh. It's a good thing, right? You can once again you can lose yourself. Well, yes, you see, yeah, yeah. All right, that was good. Uh, that was a good walk. This is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area. And spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com/buxton for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code Buxton to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Yes. Do you think that we'll bump into the actual kings of Leon? <sighs> Did you think of that on the plane? Was that your? Come on. 
just made me feel very tired. Suddenly. Yeah, I'm sure. Tired and sad. <laughs> OK, how would you deal with this situation? What would you say? OK. I went to get some sushi, Johnny. I don't know if you've had sushi before. It's a Japanese delicacy. Right. And they have a little sushi outlet in King's Cross. So I went to get myself a little box of sushi. Came to 9 99 It's very expensive, the sushi, because it's such a delicacy. So the server said, uh, 9 99 please, sir. Uh, there you go, there's a tenner. Oh, I'm very sorry, sir, but we don't have any one-p pieces today. Uh, do you mind? So basically he was saying, I'm not going to give you your one-p change. You didn't make an issue out of this, did you, Adam? Well, <laughs> what would you say, first of all, in that situation? Absolutely nothing, You'd no. say nothing, right? Nothing. I thought, I've got to say something. So I said, just out of interest, if it was the other way around and I was one-p short, would that be acceptable to you? Would you still sell me the food? And she said yes, and that's the end of the... She said no. Oh, OK. She said, no, I'm sorry, we wouldn't be allowed to. It's not a two-way street, the one P <laughs> short. If you're one P short for something in a shop... Yeah. ..you don't get to get the stuff. Unless I... it's your local shop where they know you and they're like, OK, yeah, next time or whatever, or... But if it's a chain, you are not going to get away with being one P short. Adam, you're turning into Larry David. I'm really... <laughs> That's this, a legitimate is... worry, though, isn't it? I just no. thought, what is that? I can see the rage building in you again, if you remember it. I thought, that is rubbing our noses in it. You go to the, the, the chain outlet, and it's fine for them to... Yeah. Because it's all about one piece for them, isn't it? Right. That's why they price things at 9 99 No, So it looks... Not. Why isn't it? Apparently not. Because they have to go into the till. No, yeah, exactly. Right. So you have to have a receipt. Welcome in Lyon Thank for you. tonight. I'm recording a podcast with Johnny yes. at the moment. Oh, do you sorry. That's okay. <laughs> do, so sorry. You, do you mind if you're on it? Oh, OK, it's OK. You don't mind? <laughs> I don't, All right. don't mind. What's your name? Karen. Karen. And you're coming to see the Radiohead show tonight? Yes. And this Wait. is a Roman amphitheatre tonight? It's beautiful. Right? It's beautiful, yes. Is open it open, open air? Yes, totally open air. I and you can uh, not really see all the, the town, but uh, uh, for the sound, it's beautiful. Yeah. Yes. Oh, I can't yes. wait. And uh, is there a song that you are hoping to hear tonight? For the um, uh, member of radiohead.fr, we want to hear um, Last Flowers. So right? Moonshade Pool, yeah. OK. And, uh, of course, uh, Dex Dark. That's the good right. chance you're going to get Dex Dark, isn't there? Pretty good chance. Yeah, good. Well, very nice to meet thank you. Thank you, thank you very much. Bye, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> See you later. She's a lovely person. Where should we go now? Do you, do you need to be somewhere? Well, we need to be at the hotel. Right. At half one. Yeah. To get our lift to... Um... OK. And do you, need a, do you need to do anything before then? Are you OK with me just <coughs> glomming along? I've got to go do my hour of Tai Chi. Johnny is shaking his head. <laughs> We're halfway through the podcast. I think it's going really great. The conversation's flowing like it would between a geezer and his mate. All right, mate. Hello, geezer. I'm pleased to see you. Ooh, there's so much chemistry. It's like a science lab of talking. I'm interested in what you said. Thank you. There's fun chat and there's deep chat. It's like Chris Evans is meeting Stephen Hawking. So what happened to that one pea in the sushi place? How far did you take it? Were you throwing furniture around and...? No, it crossed my mind to make a deal out of it. But then I caught myself, I was like, mate, it's 1p. Yeah. Get it in perspective. Right. And um, 
So I just gave him a withering look. I gave him the most withering of my looks. Right. How does that come across? What does that look like? It was the facial equivalent of, really? I'm um, sure it's haunted him as much as... Yeah. I bet he was really squirming that night. I don't know <laughs> if I'm in the right job. I just suddenly had an epiphany today, and the hypocrisy of the capitalist system was pointed out to me with just one look from a small, hairy man. No, it really wound me up. What about people? Do people ever shake their head at you in the street? Like, not, not because it's like, oh, it's Johnny Greenwood, there's a guy taking a picture of you in that restaurant over there. Should we run in and embarrass him? I don't Aye. want to bother you. It's okay. Just want to thank you for what you've done and what you will do. Thank you very much. You're too. very, very important for me. Nice to meet you. I'm Johnny. Nice to meet you. Very, very nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Can I take a picture? Uh, okay, sure. It's Here, let me, let me take it. And then... You can? Sure, sure. Oh, you, he hasn't... He's got, he hasn't got his camera. That's the only problem with having your picture taken. Right. Is that people generally don't know how to use the camera. Or yeah. the phone, you know? Yeah. So you, you say, yeah, sure, no problem. And then you're there for 15 to 20 minutes while they go, oh, I haven't turned the flash on. Hang on. I don't know how to turn it. Here we go. You can't imagine how important you are. You want with your head for me. That's really kind. Thank you. Thank you much. You're welcome. Nice to meet you. Cheers. Can only ever be disappointing, can't it? For him or you? Yeah. <laughs> No, that was good. You didn't spit at him. But that's what I mean. It's like it's great because he's excited about the records and the music, yeah. and I am too. But it's, it, that's what's nice, you know, because I can share that feeling and not feel responsible, not feel like, you know, it's, it's a nice thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? You don't feel responsible because you're part of a band. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Would you go up to someone that you really admired if you saw them in the street? That's a good question. Um, well, I'm a big comedian fan. So if you um, saw Larry David... For, that's a good example. There you go, you see. I mean, he's kind of a legend. Yeah. You know, sightings would be rare, you would think. I've got... Uh, it's one of my prized possessions. I've got a script from Curb in Enthusiasm. Oh, really? And it genuinely is, like, three pages long. Uh-huh. And the first scene is just Larry gets out of the car and argues with somebody. And it, it's genuinely three, four pages long and, and has no dialogue. It has, like, one or two lines, suggested lines... It's unbelievable how they just took that and turned it into just, you know, all those joyful television. It's amazing. So they're just ideas in there for scenes? Yeah. Right? yeah. It says Larry gets into an argument with a woman about parking a car. And then scene two, it's like, well, that's it? That's all you had to work with? It's unbelievable. Oh, scary for the people in the cast. I heard Julia Louis-Dreyfus talking about Veep. Right. Which, I don't know if it works in a similar way or not, but I know that some of those scenes are semi-improvised. OK. Or at least there are times when they get on set and, for whatever reason, a scene isn't working or it's not quite finished or they can think of a better way of doing it or they're exploring a better way of doing it. Yeah. But she talks about how exhausting that is because it's so anxious-making, it's so frightening. OK. To be in a position where you're being asked to come up with gold on the spot yeah because yeah. it's a different thing when you're writing i mean even writing is intimidating and yeah. difficult but having all the crew around you waiting having for you to having all the crew and cameras are rolling a lot of the time and someone yeah. snaps their fingers and says all right just you know and be I, funny start now I'm, i don't doubt that they've got very sympathetic directors and patient people working on those things yeah um 
but it must be awful. My only experience of something similar was when I did a film called Stardust, and right. I played one of the ghosts. I remember. And um, there was a scene that was, again, it wasn't, it wasn't, or they, they shot it and they were happy with it. Matthew Vaughan, the director, and Jane Goldman, the screenwriter, were there. But they said to me and David Walliams, with whom I was in this scene, you know, see if you can add anything. See if you can just uh, try some different bits out. Right. Which is a very nice thing for them to do. Sure. And I think they felt like because we were both, in a way, comedians... Yeah, sure. Um, ..that we, we would like to do that. Yeah. You know. And we're being a bit underused, uh, potentially. Well, I don't know. They just thought, they're here. Yeah. Let's see what they come up with. And so we took a few runs at this short scene and tried to ad-lib a few bits. Um, and none of them were making the whole crew crack up, you know. And I, I found it acutely embarrassing and painful. Right. Um, but then I thought, don't be silly, you know, everyone understands you're just having a go at it, it's, it doesn't have to be used, no one's worried about it. But then Rupert Everett, who was also in the scene, turned around and said, and that's supposed to be funny, is it? Oh, my God, it's like play school. Oh, yeah. Ouch. It hurt. It was embarrassing. That's not very supportive, is it? I don't think it's supportive. That's why Everett and I don't get together at Christmas. Out with Paul Weller? He and I get on famously. You patched it up? Great. Sure. That's good. He rang me up. <laughs> And said, uh, listen, you know, about that Jonathan Ross thing, I, uh, I was a bit of a prick. And saying, Paul Weller, 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 ooh, tell me more, tell me more. Actually, I thought about it. It is very funny. And I was thinking we could go and see Captain America, um, Avengers, rub each other off together on the weekend. That's the new film, right? <laughs> yeah, it was bad. It was a horrible moment. But then Walliams and... Rupert Everett ended up being terrific pals. And I felt quite betrayed. I was like, what? Do you not remember what happened when we were improvising the things? And he turned around and he got all withering on us. It's like school, really. Yeah. It's like school. But then I suppose David Williams is a, you know, he was able to transcend that in a, in a way that Dr. Buckles, with his 1P problems, was not. <laughs> Like a um, yeah tea tree cinnamon toothpick. I, I love the toothpick. You probably had one of these poor because Ed got me into these. Mm. I like how my father-in-law uses them. Lots of always with his hand over his mouth. Uh huh. Gosh, that's very. That's uh... oh, the Iraqi way. Right. That's so polite, isn't it? So polite, isn't it? No mm. one wants to see other people digging around in there. Right. You look as if you're um, about to do a harmonica solo. Maybe yeah. that's what Bob Dylan was doing a lot of the time, was just picking. He had a toothpick. But the harmonica that got me in this ridiculous band. How come? Because when they were all at school, and it was kind of mm, Colin and his friends, mm -hmm. had formed this band, and they had a song that was sort of a blues song, and I taught myself the blues harmonica. Yeah, and Colin said, you should come along, you should come along and play it on this song. Yeah. And it was all thanks to Colin, really, that I got... I got the job. And, um, yeah, and went from there to playing keyboards and guitar and, yeah. Don't hear too much harmonica on Radiohead albums anymore. No, I'm waiting, waiting for the moment. It's, yeah, it's hard to... I got it onto a pavement record. Did you? I'm very proud of. Oh, did you play that? On, um, 
On Terror Twilight, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's Billy Tom. That's how I want to go. Is that um, Billy? Yeah. Billy and Terror Terror Twilight, yeah. I really like that record. It's a great record. I remember when it came out, people were snooty about it. I couldn't understand why. And they said, oh, this is not what we want from Pavement. It's still up really well. It still sounds great. I really love it. It's, It's full of great songs. Yeah. Really tuneful. I don't understand why a band can't be two things at once, you know, and, and do different things without it being like a kind of um, heresy. Yeah. You know, if you're into a band, then you're excited to see where they go, surely, aren't you? I'm worried where this is leading now. It's not leading anywhere. It's leading to YouTube. Is it? Yeah. Do you ever read the comments? <laughs> like, when you wake up in the morning, the first thing you do, presumably, is you get on YouTube, you sure. see how is Daydreaming doing? Yeah. What are the views? Yep. Uh, what do the people think? Yeah. Do you ever do that, though? No, because if you, if you read something incredibly nice, that's very bad for you, isn't it? And if you read something that's very unpleasant but has a grain of truth in it, that's not, not good either, is it? So you kind of, you, know, you can't win. Have you trained your friends not to tell you about reviews, good and bad? Yeah. But then I kind of read them for every other band, and, I'm, you know, I'm interested in, in that sort of, that kind of journalism. It can be good. It's only when someone says something part of you agrees with, then that can get really get under your skin. If someone says, you know, like Pyramid Song is a rubbish song, then they're kind of easy to kind of dismiss because you know it's good. But it's when they pick up on the stuff that you know part of you is worried about. And which is maybe it's doing its job. That's yeah. kind of, it's fair enough. Yeah, except sometimes it can unfairly jaundice your relationship with something that's really not that bad or actually quite good or has different charms that were yeah. not apparent to that person that made the criticism, you know what I mean? And instead all they've done is shut down your enjoyment of them. That's true. I get the impression that you as a band are fairly aware of your limitations and your shortcomings and always trying to avoid certain pitfalls. That's half the, that's the big yeah. struggle, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm conscious in this record that we've been occasionally skirting around the edge of something which could be terrible and that's which is kind of fun you what know like kind of terrible thing well i mean it's not jazz piano exactly but there's elements of that just because we like records by people like alice coltrane we've got the goal to kind of go well let's try and make the sound a little bit like that okay. and then we've always that's we've always been a bit like that we've always you know the songs on our computer in our swollen heads was trying to be Miles Davis, frankly, even though no one plays a trumpet. So, you know, there you go. It's like, well, we can sound a bit like this. We've got electric piano and it's like, it's fine. You just, you, you, have, you have big ambition and you get as far as you can with it. Right, you do, you, know. you have a go at your version of something. Yeah, And exactly. then enjoy the way that it gets mangled. Yeah, exactly. You enjoy missing and thinking, oh, well, then you end up somewhere else. Sometimes it's a good place. So were you guys listening to Bitches Brew and yeah, that thinking... Yeah, and okay computer, yeah, loads. Right. It's all about that record, yeah. Talking Heads, bit of Remain in Light. Sure. We met Jerry Harrison not long after, and the revelation from him was that all of that stuff was played. It wasn't loops at all. They just played the same thing, exactly the same thing for five minutes, On ten Remain minutes. in Light. Yeah. Right. Which is really interesting, and that's why it's not exhausting to listen to, because you're not, you're not hearing the same piece of music over and over again. You're just hearing slightly different every time. Uh-huh. Have you seen this? Good lesson there. Yeah. There's some black and white footage of Talking Heads playing in 1980 on okay. YouTube. Yeah. 
Oh, it's so good. Tina Weymouth doesn't look very comfortable, though, because it's the new expanded lineup. Okay. And at one point, she seems to miss a beat or something, and then she's a, a couple of beats behind the rest of the band for a good minute or so. Right. And they're all looking at her and going, what? What are you doing? <laughs> What's going on? It's a very odd moment that you wouldn't really associate with them. Does it ever fall apart on stage? Yes, yeah, sometimes, for sure. I mean, we do some idiotech, which is all based around like a homemade drum machine, basically, which can just occasionally drop a beat or add a beat or and everyone's trying to play along to it. And that's fun, because when it goes wrong, it goes properly wrong and, and we just have to give up on the song and move on. How's Rosie? Rosie is great. Oh my god. Have you got a dog? Yeah. What's your dog called? Mushy. Mushy. Mushy mushy. Mushy mushy, like yeah. a Japanese dog. Yeah. And she's very small and very ugly. But I I thought you were like a not a dog person at all. No, what I didn't. Happened? Well, what happened is Rosie happened. And, yeah. and, and no, Natty happened, which yeah. is, uh, my son Natty just pleaded and pleaded and pleaded. Yeah. And we had long discussions and we thought that it would be a good thing. Right. For him to look after a living creature and be responsible for it, take care of it, give him some focus. And how long did that last? 10 to 15 days. Okay. And then I don't know if he's ever walked her again since. No, that's not true. He is, he is still interested and sure. he loves Rosie, as, as do we all. But, but you really do. Like on a podcast, it comes across. I do, I do. You're, absolutely. you're out being countryman, wandering around. Yeah. She's good company. She's great. And I think this is a cliche about owning dogs. But in fact, I think it was Louis that was saying to me the other day, uh, we want to be the people that our dogs think we are. Okay. In other words, there's something wonderful about the joy with which you're received by yeah. a, a lovely dog, yeah. you know? Yeah. When you come home yeah. and that dog starts losing its mind... Well, Mushy just collapses, spread eagle on the floor and wheezes herself. <laughs> and <he's> like, <laughs> well, there you go. That's what you want, I get that a lot, though, from everyone. Sure, I get <laughs> from that humans. from my wife. Sure. You know, and you, sometimes you come back and you're feeling like a bit of a git. Yeah. And thinking, oh, I'm rubbish. And then Rosie just boing yeah. <laughs> and spinning round and round and looking at you. Just, just sort of, there's real emotion in the eyes, it yeah. seems. You know what no, I mean? she sounds stupid. Yeah, maybe she's thick. <laughs> but that's all you need. Someone furry and thick that likes you. And then you've got everything you need. Right, let's go again. What don't you fucking understand? Kick your fucking ass! Let's go again! What the fuck is it with you? I want you off the fucking set, you prick! No! You're a nice guy! What the, the fuck are you doing? No! Don't shut me up! No! No! Ah, uh, da-da-da-da like this! No! No! Don't shut me up! Ah, uh, da-da-da-da like this! Fuck's sake, man, you're amateur! Seriously, man, you and me, we're fucking done professionally. You're quite good at changing your style, though, and not getting too locked into one thing. Are you quite mindful of that? Uh, Yes, yeah. I think so, yeah. Because everything you've done with Paul Thomas Anderson so far has been very different sounding, isn't it? I, I hope so. 
Yes, I, I think so. Does he come to you with ideas or are you left to react to the uh, footage yourself? There will sometimes be some reference recordings or films that he likes, but he's very enthusiastic about music and uses it so prominently in his films. I think real film composers have it properly difficult. They have to work very fast. They have their music usually rejected or spoken all over and are told what to do. And or, or a given temporary music that they have to copy slavishly. And it has to sound exactly like that, but not so close that they can be sued. And that's a lot of the job, I think. Right, so you, Paul Thompson, has got you involved as a collaborator on a project, but an artist working in his own right who's going to add something to the overall. Yeah, I'm kind of indulged enough that I can write and record far more music than is needed and sort of have fun with his orchestras and then he just takes parts that he wants and he even like cuts some of the films with the music which is just unheard of I think I mean it's very 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 kind of pampered not that I tell him that yeah. idiot <laughs> that he is um, yeah it's good fun seeing you do I came to see you doing the um, There Will Be Blood score yeah. right the, uh, for David Burns Meltdown sure that was good that was great, although it was, it's a weird experience because I kept on... It was a little like seeing a 3D film in that I kept having to remind myself that you were actually there playing the music. OK. Do you know what I mean? Because it just sounded like the music in the film. Yeah. I kept on having to th say, oh, look, he's down there, there's a real orchestra there. Yeah. This isn't just on the soundtrack. Well, props to Hugh Brunt for conducting it because he did it all off the score with no click track just with little bits of dialogue written in on top, like they used to do in the old days. Uh -huh. So he has to keep things in time and just try and make things match like that, which is a real achievement, you know, to prepare it and conduct it. Yeah, that must have been a lot of rehearsal, wasn't it? Yeah, but, you know, they were amazing. And just to sit in the middle of an orchestra and watch them play stuff like all the Brahms violin concerto oh. in the middle, it's just incredible. That's a long show, though, isn't it? That's two and a half hours? Two and a half hours, yeah. And, and then you're set Lots there. of music, yeah. And you must be... You have to be careful about what you drink beforehand, otherwise what? it's going to be wee-wee time and then well, you're stuffed. And now you realise why all of the real theatre musicians that sit in the pit all day and do the same concert every night are all just wild alcoholics and let's just drive you crazy. Imagine yeah. that, doing the same show every night, playing right. the same trombone part, whatever. For but for me, it's the nightmare mad. of being desperate to do a wee and not being able to go anywhere. Right. That's one of my worst things. Yeah. Um, have you heard? Um, have you heard David Sedaris talking about his stadium pal? No. Maybe that's the thing for you. Like I thought about getting a stadium pal. Right. How does it actually attach to the old chap? I believe with sellotape, so there's nothing. <laughs> sellotape, <laughs> like surgical sellotape. I believe so. Yeah, thing from my memory. <laughs> He's a very funny writer. He's great, Indeed, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever listen to his audio books? Obsessively, yeah. He's really, really funny. What's your favourite one of his? Oh, Me Talk Pretty One Day, I suppose. Yeah. He's a classic. When he's doing his Billy Holiday impression. Yeah, to his singer te singing teacher. Yeah. His guitar teacher. So shocked. Yeah, very great. When he's describing his childhood in America and growing up in the 70s, it's just so... Yeah, you know, making people laugh, it's a real... It's a lovely thing, don't you think? Uh, yeah, it is. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's frustratingly imprecise art 
And I envy a good musician who is able to, you can pretty much guarantee that you're going to do a certain thing to a crowd a lot of the time. Right. When you're playing a good song and you know how to play it. And yeah. When a musician sits down in a small venue or at a party or whatever and they yeah. actually start playing, yeah. it's like nothing else. Yeah. And you can be transported for however long they're playing. Right. And it's really exciting seeing that talent right in front of you. And that's such a wonderful, intimate experience that you can have with someone who's performing that I don't think you can have with a comedian. I mean, you can have an enjoyable conversation with a comedian where they're being funny, but it doesn't happen that often. Usually when you talk to a comedian, they're, they're not telling jokes as such. They're just like anyone else. You wouldn't necessarily be aware of their... I suppose so, but a comedian can always relate a story with stars. It's nice. It's, yeah. like, you know, it's like Alan Bennett said, it's always... Sharing a joke is more special than sharing a bed, really, and it's nicer to, you know, and that's, that's where pleasure lies, really. Spending time with people who are just good company. It's kind of great. Mm. Not that we can't just pop into bed. Sure, you know. sure, we can do that. <laughs> but no, it's, it's weird, isn't it? There's that, that, that comedy and um, music symbiosis that's always existed. Yeah, that's true, you um, see. Because I think the two sides envy so much about what the others do. Yeah. Um, you think? Well, the way you talk about comedy mm. is the way I feel about music. Right. I find it similarly exciting, and I would love to be able to do what you do, you know, and I would love to be able to do what almost any musician does, just to have that facility for creating those moments at any point. Yeah. Ah, oh, it's wonderful. Yeah, but I'd like to have eloquence and the and ability to just record my voice and interview people and, you know, make people laugh. That's, that's really that's a wonderful thing. Johnny Greenwood. We spent the rest of that evening making sweet, sweet love. Uh, and then he went on to uh, do a really good show with the band. It's the perfect day, really. I had a great time wandering around, drinking French beer and stealing biscuits and sweets from outside their dressing rooms while they were on stage. Uh, it was Buckle's idea of a, a perfect time. So thanks very much indeed to them for putting up with me, hanging around, and especially to Johnny. I hope uh, he won't be the last member of Radiohead that appears on the podcast in future times. Uh, before I say goodbye, oh, it's raining again. What's that? A couple of things. People often ask me what kind of mics I use on this podcast. Um, well, I use a variety of mics. Sometimes I just use the mic on, the, on my phone. These days, they're pretty much good enough. On this occasion with Johnny, I was using a couple of little Tascam mic packs. The DR10CS with Sony Lav Mic Bundle. Ah, oh, it's always good to hang out with Mic Bundle. But they are very small packs that record the actual audio files, WAVs or whatever format you choose. And then you can plug a little clip mic into them, that's the uh, Sony lav mic bit. Obviously incredibly light and you can more or less forget that you're wearing them and they're very discreet and you can cover them up with uh, fluffy cover-over things if you choose. I hadn't completely sussed all the settings on them. It was the first time I'd used them, so that's why sometimes the, uh, the, the, the quality of the recording varied a little bit uh, on that conversation with Johnny. Sometimes it was a bit more noisy than others. 
but they're, they're really great. I'm not sponsored, I hasten to add, by Tascam. I'm not obliged to be saying any of this, but I'm just... Um, it might be of interest to some people. If Tascam wished to get in touch and throw money and mic packs at me, I'd be absolutely delighted. Um, and finally today, a bit of uh, positive feedback in the form of a message I received. Uh, listening to other podcasts, I get the feeling that people expect you to read out positive messages that you get. Because not only does it shore up your own self-worth as the presenter of the podcast, but it also proves to your listeners that they're not stupid for listening to you. Um, when they hear that other people like the podcast, because, you know, you might be listening thinking, oh, well, I like it, but maybe I'm thick. And maybe everyone else is just listening going, this is awful. But then when the presenter reads out a message saying, you're brilliant, then everyone's like, oh, okay, we can relax. It turns out we were right. He is brilliant and other people agree. So, and it's not something I would normally do on the podcast, but here's a message that I got this week. And this came in via the blog. People have the option on my blog to leave comments, but I have to moderate them all. So I choose which ones to publish and which ones not to publish, depending on whether the message seems to be for public consumption or not. Well, it's really raining now. Anyway, it would be good, incidentally, if you do indicate, if you leave a message there, whether you would rather it remained a private message or whether you're okay with me publishing it. This one, I'm pretty sure it's okay for me to read it out. It's from hawks at gmail.com. And I would not normally advertise the email address of anyone sending me a message, but I think in this case it's probably okay. And it says, What I don't understand is, in truth how you are no longer really a lot more well-liked than you might be now. You are so intelligent. You recognise thus considerably relating to this topic, made me personally believe it from numerous various angles. It's like women and men don't seem to understand unless it is something to accomplish with girl gaga. <laughs> Your individual stuff's outstanding. Always deal with it up! Exclamation mark. So I think that's spam. I get quite a bit of spam. And uh, usually it's just total nonsense. But on this occasion, that spam really hit the mark in a very positive way. So thanks, hawks at gmail.com. You are one of my favourite automated people. And that's not to say, by the way, that I don't appreciate the messages that I get from you actual human types... But uh, that one, yeah, I loved that one particularly. All right, that's enough for this week. If this was your first time listening, maybe you um, wanted to listen to the podcast because you were a Radiohead fan, then I do hope you enjoyed it and perhaps you'll come back and join me for another one some other time. Till next time we meet, take care. I love you. Bye! Milkshake! I drink it up!